Hey, it's Beth Rolfs from the Hashtag Five Things podcast. The Hashtag Five Things podcast is your source for the latest in social media. For about 30 minutes every week, we deep dive into the headlines from the social channels you use the most. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and more. Search your podcast app with the hashtag, the number five things. Hashtag five things. Powered by Gray. Some years ago, I got together with a team at the Moth and we started the high school slams. And it's amazing because the first slam I did actually in sort of a non-moth event when I was on tour down in near Atlanta. And we went to a high school and they brought all the high school juniors and seniors into this. And it was really like a pep rally. It was this amazing energy in this room. We had selected eight storytellers and some of them were extremely successful, popular kids who honestly didn't do very well. They didn't do badly. They told nice, bland stories. And then came onto the stage maybe the most unpopular girl in school. And she wore big army boots that were unlaced. And she just clomped onto the stage. And her story was, I'm not a member, and she named a particular high school clique, I'm not a member of that clique, and I don't give a damn. And the audience erupted. She had never been able to speak before. And the kids in that school had never been able to speak out against cliques and bullying before. And she told this amazing story. Several other storytellers told stories sort of along along that line. There were people, there were kids who were generally awkward in school. And they turned out to be fabulous storytellers. And they turned out to have immense power and they had never seen it before. I think that events like that will actually change the world. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas. And so, with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds from all corners of life how they came up with their best ideas. And that's what matters for Gray Matter. On this episode of Grey Matter, we'll hear all about one of the core pillars of humanity, the art of storytelling. Hi, I'm John Patrols, Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Grey, and this week's idea is The Moth. The Moth is a nonprofit group based in New York that hosts a wide range of events all over the world, centered around the live performance of personal, unscripted stories. And we're chatting today with author, storyteller, and founder of The Moth, George Dawes Green. George's literary work is world-renowned. His books have been adapted into movies. His novels include The Caveman's Valentine, The Juror, and most recently, Ravens. I had the privilege of chatting with George about his inspiration to start The Moth, what he thinks makes a great story, and you'll find out who George says is one of the best moth storytellers of all time. Founded in 1997, moth performances have grown from living rooms to packed auditoriums. They are usually themed and feature prominent literary and cultural personalities. In 2009, The Moth launched the podcast, The Moth Radio Hour, in partnership with National Public Radio. And just one year later, in 2010, the podcast won a Peabody Award. And since 2013, The Moth has published three international best-selling books. This conversation focuses on the power of storytelling. It's a bit longer than our usual conversations, and it covers a lot of ground. A quick warning... In this episode, George and I briefly mentioned suicide. If this topic is sensitive to you or anyone you're listening with, jump ahead two minutes when you hear George talking about Belize. And as an additional resource, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours at 800-273-8255. Without further ado, this is George Dawes Green. Well, The Moth is a storytelling platform. We always try to figure out how to phrase that because we do so many things with storytelling. Evenings that are now held all over the world where people gather to tell stories and listen to stories. Those are recorded. um, So now we have a Moth podcast. We have a Moth radio hour. We have outreach programs and Moth in the schools and... We go to Africa and India and spread the gospel of storytelling 
and raconteuring. I like to call it raconteuring. So I still don't know what to call it. I mean, platform seems a little dry, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But I think that was pretty good. What makes the moth unique, I think, one of the things that makes it unique is we're talking about storytelling. It isn't written. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, kind of the rules around it? It's not just any kind of story. We're we're asking people to tell personal stories, Um, true stories. um, A little embellishment is allowed and even encouraged, but in general, the stories need to be true. And um, uh, we uh, usually time the stories. So, you know, when you um, stand up and perform, you'll tell a five-minute story, you know, or a 10-minute story. Um, And what we sort of aim for is for people to show a little vulnerability. Um, And we also like to have stories now, this is a little bit hard to put. They're, it's not that they're unrehearsed because often people do rehearse them, but there needs to be a sense that you're cooking the story up in your brain as you go along. You can't read the stories. You're not allowed to bring up any notes. And so there has to be this intimate connection between the storyteller and the audience. Yes, and I think that is... Um feeling as if um, it is happening in the moment. I'm guessing that is what creates that connection, maybe more than someone who's performing that allows the audience to be slightly passive to how that story is delivered to them. Yeah, the, the, the moth is all about the connection between storyteller and audience. And that goes back to the very, you know, the very beginning, the first uh, glimmer of an idea that I had for, for why I wanted the moth. And, and for everything that it's become, it's really not just about a person standing up there and telling a story. It's about a community that gathers to listen to stories and to share stories. And that community is an equal partner in the transaction. So you just mentioned the gl- your first glimmer of an idea for the moth. Can you take us to that moment a little bit? What, what was the inspiration to, to do this? Uh, I started The Moth back in 1997, but the idea came from much, much earlier. I used to go in the 80s, I would go to a lot of poetry slams, which were becoming very, very popular. Um, And I would go to the New Yorican Poetry Cafe and listen to slams. Um, The slams were sometimes wonderful poetry, sometimes really, really terrible, execrable poetry. But there was always this great joy in the experience, and I wasn't always sure why. Um, and so one night I was at the New York and, uh, uh Poetry Cafe, and Bob Holman was the host, and a poet, and I won't say who it was, but a poet was uh, standing up there um, and telling these long poems that were sort of de rigueur back in the 80s, these um, non-sequitur, stream-of-consciousness, surrealistic, um, you know, uh, uh, just spray of thoughts. And, and, and always with that wonderful sing-song of the poets in the 80s. So she was saying something like, The six-pack of my father's Cadillac in the night of my deepest memories that leads to the chrysanthemum of my glory, and on and on and on. And the audience was beginning to get a little sleepy and droopy. And then somehow we realized that she had stopped, and then there was this sort of polite, um, you know, golf applause. And then um, she was about to read her next poem, but before she did, she wanted to tell a story to introduce it. And she said, you know, so uh, when I was a kid, I used to go with my grandfather fishing. You know, he'd come over, you know, and I was living on Staten Island and he'd come there at like 4.30 in the morning and, you know, I'd get up and uh, and we'd go down to his, you know, station wagon, which had the old wooden sides and, you know, and, uh, and, and we'd pile in and we'd drive up to to upstate New York and go to this trout stream 
at like just the crack of it. And while she's telling the story, I realized that everyone in the audience was paying rapt attention. It was, it, it was the simplest story. But what had happened there was this moment where, where the veil between the artist and the audience had come down. And there was this connection of simply telling a story, hearing a story. So I got this idea that it would be wonderful to have a night of poetry with no poetry, only the stories <laughs> that introduced the poems. Yeah. And so I, so I went to Bob Holman and I said, you know, I, I told him this idea. And I think he thought I was being a bit of a smart aleck. And, um, you know, he sort of laughed. But actually that idea stayed with me. Now that was in the, in the 80s. And so about 15 years later, I had had uh, a really successful novel. I was living in New York. Uh, I had some money and I had some time. And I had been raised in Georgia um, where we stayed up all night on porches telling stories. And here I was in New York where uh, you just couldn't tell a story, you know, at a cocktail party. There was always the the vultures that would interrupt you, you know, that... and I, you couldn't tell more than eight seconds of the story, but I had an idea that New Yorkers were actually probably great raconteurs if they were only given enough time. So I held at my law, at my loft, um, the first moth, and um, and it, it it was actually horrible. It was, um, you know, the. Everybody was long-winded, and the stories had morals, and they went on and on and on. And afterwards, I thought, well, this is never going to go anywhere. Um, but my friend Sherry Holman was there, and she and I talked afterwards. And she said, no, 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 it really went well. I mean, it went well in some weird way. It didn't, you know, it, it wasn't a success, but you could see that it's going to be. And so I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it again and again and again. And we did. Yes, and you have. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned a couple things there. One in the, the slams themselves. Um, I've been the New, to the New York in a few times and always found the slams to be intimidating because I felt like a lot of them were about, so much of it's like cleverness and dexterity and what you're talking about, switch that when when that poet switched it off and went to a story, it became about simplicity and, and maybe truth. I think I kind of like the little it's truth, hopefully, but maybe to make sure the truth's really good. <laughs> you help it along. We don't have uh, a police force. Yeah. We don't have an investigative <laughs> agency. So if it's not true, you know, you, you might get away with it. But it shows, uh, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about simplicity and the importance of simplicity and how often great ideas have simplicity at their center. Sometimes it isn't expressed in simple ways, but certainly simplicity is in its center. And I've, it feels like that's one of the things that, that um, inspired this and has maybe helped lead uh, to it being something that also exists on so many, I'm going to use the word platforms. I know you didn't like it to start with, but it does exist live. It mm-hmm. exists on the printed page. It exists just in audio. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a simplicity that's in the center of it that allows it to live all in all those places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There is a simplicity at, at the core of the moth. There's, and also what's interesting is that, that, that all great stories are simple. All great stories are about decisions. And at the heart of every great story is, is a simple decision. And I often find that when stories don't work very well, it's because the storyteller doesn't really know what the story is about. And if, if you can think about it and sort of boil it down to, you know, what is it at its heart? You should be able to sort of say it in a sentence. And that, that idea about being able to boil things down to their essence, um, I think is at the key of uh, every sort of success, not just stories, but, you know, uh, 
all sorts of uh, corporations, um, movements. Uh, er everything really needs to have a simple heart, and you need to understand the simple heart. When you had this idea, it sounds like the way, one of the questions I was going to ask you, but it, you told it a little bit in your earlier description of how, how you take an idea like this and convince people to, to do it. It feels a little bit like one of the things you did is you, you just did it, and some people saw it and it started. Well, no, it was more complicated than that, because remember that that first evening was, was, was a total bust. So, I mean, you know, I would like to be able to say, oh, it was just wonderful from the very beginning, but it wasn't. It was actually terrible. And I think that's sort of the, the key, the thing that makes me the most proud of what we did, is that then we had to sort of go back and say, well, what is it? You know, what is it that I've been looking for? What is it that I've been dreaming of? Because for I, I've been dreaming of this for, you know, a couple of years, like thinking, well, we could have these evenings of stories and they would be utterly magical because I would simply bring in, you know, the raconteurs that I knew or that I'd heard, you know, on TV when I was a kid. Um, people like G Jimmy Breslin, for example, you know, you can just bring them in and it turned out that we needed a few simple rules, I think, as, as you suggested. One, and sort of the key to the success of the moth, is we needed a timekeeper. We needed a violin to play at the end of 10 minutes or 11 minutes or 12 minutes. You know, we sometimes cheat that. But, but the point is that there was a lot of resistance when I first said, you know, oh, I want a timekeeper. Because in those days... In the art scene in New York, it was felt that, oh, that's, you know, that that will be, you know, some kind of a fascist thing, you know. An artist, <laughs> an artist really needs to know that he or she can go on and on and on. And I thought, no, if we have a timekeeper, it'll be good for the storyteller and it'll be good for the audience. And it yeah. really was. There was a sense, I think, when we brought in, well, first we brought in a, a saxophone. But when we had that saxophone standing back behind the storyteller, I think the audience just felt so much more comfortable that they weren't going to have to sit around, you know, because they're all, you know, they're often boring stories. You know, even now we have boring stories. That's sort of a part of the whole deal. Sometimes you're not going to like a story. Sometimes the story is just not going to be good. It's really good to know that somebody will end it. Yes. And that turns out to be a key decision, but... You know, and now you look at it and think, well, of course. But actually, that was very, very difficult to come by. Yes. The power, it's something else that comes up a lot in some of these conversations, the power, the creative power of constraint, of creating the, there's some rules, uh, and everyone resists rules. Creative people resist rules, and creative expression resists rules. You don't want to be forced. But restraint seems to come up a lot in these conversations that, it forces um, some invention inside of it and does maybe allow anyone participating to participate more fully or enjoy it more fully if there's yes. some constraints around it. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And then I think the other rule that we came up with early on, you know, this is another thing that, oh, now it seems as though it was uh, built in, but, but it wasn't. We... In the beginning, we experimented with letting people tell third-person stories. You could tell a story that your grandfather had told you. And we found quickly that everybody turned off. It has to be about you. The story has to be about you. Even if the most exciting things in the story are about, say it's about your small role in electing Barack Obama. Well, you know, people might be interested in some of the big sweeping moments of that election, but what they really want to hear is what happened to you in that story. And they also want to hear, and this was something that took a little bit longer, they want to hear that you are willing to be vulnerable, that you're not up there trying to show the world what a wonderful person you are. And, and, rather that you're willing to show the world what a clown you are. And that, you know, that, that actually turned out to be the key to the success of the moth. 
people who are willing to show their vulnerabilities. I mean, uh, I can give you an example. We had uh, a night that was dedicated to wine and a, and a very uh, important writer and celebrity told a story about how he had gone to a wine tasting and there were uh, a number of people, uh, you know, competing to, uh, I guess, guess the wines in a blind tasting. And he was able to tell that this was some kind of a rare Riesling when nobody else was able to guess it. And that, you know, that's sort of the essence of the story. Um, and he got, you know, polite applause. And then the next storyteller told a story about sitting next to Princess Anne at some kind of ceremony and realizing that she had no idea of what the wines were or what she was supposed to say about the wines. And and because of the pressure, she just kept drinking more and more and more. <laughs> and she just kept grabbing the bottle and pouring it. <laughs> and she yeah. turned into a clown and made a fool of herself. And the audience... Um, went wild. And I can't tell you the number of times that that uh, s- that or similar things like that have happened. What do you think what do you think it is about this art form that works best by keeping it personal? Because I'm, there are certainly many art forms that are about third person or ideas um, that can work sounds like it's specifically here. Do you think there's something specific about this this um, setting or this idea of the moth that, that demands that? I think it's something about... It, it's the connection that's formed between the storyteller and the audience. Um, the, the, the audience in some way has to shape your story. You... The audience needs to feel that their reactions are, are going to do something to your story. You can't just you can't just keep telling your story if you're getting you know uh, gales of laughter. You need to stop. You need to pause. You need to connect with the audience. There's a real feeling that this is not simply an art form um, where you're producing for a group of people. It the the moth at its best feels like a community. When you uh, go to a great moth show, I mean, I go to great moth shows, I know the individual laughs of different people in the audience. And so I can feel who's delighted and why they're delighted. And, and, and you can also feel when people are coming to tragic moments or to just even thoughtful moments or even just to moments that are brilliant uh, twists of storytelling. You can feel this particular kind of voluminous silence settle into the room. And that's uh, transformative. And, and, and for that reason, I hesitate to listen to the podcast. I mean, I, I often host the radio show, so I'll listen, you know, a lot to the recordings, but I never get quite as much out of the recording as I do out of the live event. All right. So I was going to ask you this question, though it's interesting you said that. So much of this is about that relationship between the audience and the storyteller. What gave you the confidence to try moving it beyond the live experience into podcasts and printing them in in books? Well, that was actually, that wasn't my decision. I wasn't the one fighting for the podcast. There were, there were a number of people, you know, and the executive director, then Leah Tao, was adamant that we needed to expand podcasts. I, we'd been experimenting with podcasts, but um, the you know our podcast platform it it just grew exponentially, and I quickly began to understand why. I mean, I was always I wasn't I can't say I was resistant to it because I always liked the idea of okay, you know we we can spread out into the world. But I, I was resistant to losing our sense of identity as something that was an alternative to the internet. And so, so I always wanted to make sure that everything was grounded in these evenings. But, um, but then there was this huge 
response to the, to the podcast. And I quickly began to realize that the podcasts are, are a force in the world. Um, I, I have gone to, I'll, I'll tell you one story. I was in uh, Belize a few years ago in the middle of nowhere. Um, and there was a little sort of cafe that Nash, you know, that the international community went to. And I went there and because I was in Belize, I'd been wearing uh, all of my t-shirts. And so they were all stinky. <laughs> so I had nothing left to wear except the moth shirt that I brought along, you know, to give as a gift to somebody. So I put that on and a few people came up um, talked to me and somehow the word got out that I was the founder of the moth and people formed a line to come and simply to tell me how important the moth had been. And mostly they're talking about the moth podcast, how important that had been in their lives. And, and a, two people had told me that they had stepped back from suicide because of the moth podcast. And that's something that I've heard all over the world that when people are lonely, they can, turn on the moth podcast and they hear these, these deep human moments, um, moments that are about, about foolishness and about, about the sort of clownish experience of living. And, and I tell you after that, I was, I have never tried to resist the podcast. Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> powerful. And it, so it wasn't the people who had affected who stepped back from suicide, for example, it wasn't, that the story itself was their story or something. It was the human connection they were able to feel through the podcast and through the, the human stories. Yeah. And they saw a bit of themselves in the story. I mean, yeah. you know, we have, we have a lot of stories about people who, you know, are driven to the edge. And so I think, yes. It's, yeah. I think, I think that's really important. And that sort of brings up one of, one, one of the great drivers of the moth success has been, there's a, a kind of a therapeutic element to telling stories. The element that I have always focused on is the sense of uh, the artistic element. I'm always looking for the very best stories. But um, the stories that seem to me the most risk-taking. Um, um, but uh, often the stories that are the most powerful, the stories uh, that work the best, the stories that are played over and over again, are simple human stories about how I deal with suffering in the world. Well, I guess the podcast, it's obviously it's pretty intimate form and it becomes almost individual instead of the moth is such a communal experience live. Um, I could see how it could touch somebody individually in, in a deep way. Cause it's, you, you're getting, someone's talking directly to you, frankly, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and also I think that they feel that they are then part of this community, you know, and it's the same experience that we might get watching, you know, Midnight in Paris. We might feel, oh, actually, for a moment, I feel like I'm, I'm part of the 1930s in Paris. And I, so I think people do feel that, that uh, you know, we, we always make a point of saying where the story was told and where the audience is. In fact, I, I just did a radio show not long ago where I talked about the places where we hold the moths and how those uh, uh, inform the stories. So that there, there's this idea that even if you're, you know, in, uh, in the middle of Nebraska, you can listen in and for a moment, you're there with this community of people who are kind and loving and curious. So let's talk, you know, we're talking so much about stories. There are a lot of stories in the world, a lot of ways to tell them, no shortage of, certainly now, no shortage of content uh, is the word. Why did the, why do you think the world needs this? Why did it need it? And because obviously it does. Well, it's interesting, but when I started the Maw, there, as far as I know, now I'm not certain of and I'm always asking people about this, people in the uh, people in what we call the sort of the larger story, storytelling community. Um, because, you know, there, there have been uh, storytelling events 
um, for, you know, a law, I mean, obviously for centuries and centuries, but those are scripted stories or they're uh, third person stories. But I think that the moth is the first time that people were ever, ever gathered on stage to tell personal uh, stories. Um, personal unscripted stories. Spalding Gray, um, the you know the brilliant playwright and performer, would tell stories that weren't terribly scripted. I mean, he always had a script in front of him, um, but he would often you know launch off and diverge from that. But I still could sort of think of those as kind of rehearsed scripted stories. You're very aware of the script. You're aware. Like, yeah. You're aware of the paper in front of him yes. often when he yeah. when he was performing. Yeah, yeah. It was like a prop. I love Spalding Gray, but um, but so I do think that the moth in 1997 was the first time in world history that people had ever been gathered on a stage to tell personal stories. Now, obviously, people have told personal stories you know, since the beginning of humankind. In fact, I, I sort of think it, it may be the essence of what, a, you know, what a human being is. Um, but for some reason, there was always a feeling, well, these, these stories don't belong on stage. It's not real art. And, uh, and that I've always thought, you know, I, I remember thinking, even when I was a kid, I used to sneak downstairs late at night to watch uh, the, the Jack Parr show, the old Tonight Show before Johnny Carson. Um, and I would really watch hoping that one of the great storytellers would be on, Alexander King or Jimmy Breslin. Because when those people got on, Parr would just, just sort of give them a little cue and then let them talk until the next commercial break. So they get a full six minutes to tell whatever story they wanted to. And even at the age of 10, I remember being utterly moved by that and always kind of wondering why there wasn't more of that, why professional raconteurs, I mean, why there wasn't really a real celebration, raconteuring. And I still don't have the answer. I don't, I don't know. And um, so I'd be interested if any of your listeners know of any prior events of personal unscripted storytelling. I would love to hear about it. Uh, I was, of course, I was racking my brain when you were talking. I was like, is this true? Uh, closest I can think it would be court. Because you could sit in a courtroom <laughs> and hear people tell supposedly true stories about something that happened to them. Uh, people go and watch that. So maybe. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You said that storytelling, you feel, is almost the essence of being human. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that because it is it feels intuitively true, but a little bit hard to describe, maybe. Yeah, well, so a, a story is really a, a cluster of data um, that is glued together with emotion. And... You know, at first I, I thought, well, the, the original stories were probably, you know, uh, uh, early uh, Homo sapiens were telling stories about how they went over the hill and they saw a saber-toothed tiger and they had something happen to them there. And now they're telling the group around the campfire so that the people around the campfire will learn what to do when you meet a saber-toothed tiger. Um, now, one interesting thing about, about stories is that we have this ability, I think, when we listen to a story, to turn ourselves off and to allow the, the, the impulses are, uh, uh, to be directed by the storyteller. And so, th and this, by the way, you know, this is this interesting thing of, that neuroscientists are studying. My wife, by the way, is a neuroscientist. So we've been spending a lot of time looking in, into this. You know, I think the phenomenon that when you get close to a cliff, you have this, often have this sort of terrible 
fear that you're going to jump off the cliff. Um, you know that you're not, but something is going on in your head. And I think this is a similar thing. What, what, what's happening is that your brain uh, imagines this danger. And as it imagines, it, it puts you into it and sort of gives you a certain amount of agency. And you can't just turn that off. And you find this with great stories. When you're listening to a story, you, you, you feel that you, your agency is sort of cap, captured by this story. You surrender your, your, your very agency. And, and that's what makes the, the world of the story so compelling because you're really surrendering yourself. You're in a group situation, so you can feel the group around you is doing the same thing, so you feel safe. But you're actually giving yourself over to the power of the storyteller. And that's what makes stories so powerful. But what I've been recently interested in is there are a lot of studies looking at to what, where, what do we use our gray matter for? And it turns out that we don't actually use a lot of our gray matter um, uh, worrying about saber-toothed tigers or dangerous episodes that we might get involved with. Most of our gray matter is spent learning about our relationships to our relatives. You know, to our relatives and to other members of the tribe. And so, you know, when you think, well, a group of chimpanzees might have uh, 80 members in the group. And, and they'll know those 80 members pretty well. But uh, Homo sapiens will have hundreds of members in a group and will not only know all those members very well, but they'll understand the relationship of those members to other tribes and to other groups. And all of this takes a huge amount of brain space to be able to keep track of what's the position of your brother-in-law, what's your hierarchy, uh, relationship, you know, with your mother's first cousin, you know, all these names, you know, all these stories. And what, and, and then you come to the moth and you'll find that very few moths are about uh, how I survived this, uh, you know, train wreck or this, you know, terrible, scary moment. Most moths are about how I survived Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. And just and, as treacherous, if not yeah, more. Yeah. yeah, and that's what makes us. That's that's what makes us human. Because when we were able to get these relationships straight, then we were able to form these very large groups, and our these large groups were then able to go and completely. I hate to say it, but we, you know, we were able then to violently go and destroy any tribe that wasn't able to have these large groups. And so that, for, for better or worse, is what has created humanity. And storytelling is such a pivotal, intrinsic part of that. I wonder if artificial intelligence, when you say data, it's data uh, held together by emotion and understanding relationships, maybe that's the only missing part that allows stories to stay human and not artificial is the emotion that, that stitches it all together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. A storytelling, you know, I like working with storytelling because I feel like I'm the last person who's going to lose my job to the robots. I mean, I will lose my job to the robots. Eventually, robots will figure that out too. But, but it'll, be another, it'll be another three or four years anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's, well, thanks for that. Uh, so I have a, how about for you? As a, you're obviously very inspired by stories, talked about being 10, sneaking down to, to hear stories. You're an accomplished storyteller yourself. What did you get out of, besides the idea and seeing it come to life, what do you get out of the moth? You, you, you yourself have, have the ability to tell stories that the world wants to hear. So I'm interested in what would have inspired you um, to want to hear so many other people's stories. Well, I mean, I can't not remember a time when listening to stories was my favorite thing, you know. Also, 
you know, listening to stories and drinking bourbon. That was always a key part of it. But um, the, the moments of, of a great raconteur, the little things that the raconteur will do to set you up for, you know, you have this expectation that this is where the story is going. And then it doesn't go there. It goes somewhere else. Um, I can't tell you what bliss it is to be in, for me, to be, I think, in the hands of a great raconteur. You know, I think our greatest raconteur is a man named Edgar Oliver. If you're a Moth fan, you'll know Edgar by his voice. He speaks, well, like this, really. A sort of strange, haunted voice. But he tells stories about his relationship with his mother and his sister in Savannah um, and about all the people that he knew and uh, being an artist uh, in the East Village. And I just can't tell you how beautiful they are. Um, When when Edgar's on his game, then I am as happy as I can be. I can remember once uh, I took Edgar on tour and we were traveling around the South. And there was one night when we went back to Savannah and he got to tell a Savannah story in Savannah to a Savannah audience. And I remember at just some point, you know, I'm in the back. I hear the stories over and over again. I know them word by word. Of course, they're, they're always varied. But Edgar in particular kind of, you know, he tells basically the same story. But I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I remember just sitting down and tears were on my face, not because the story was sad in in particular, but just because he had nailed those pivotal details, little twists of his breath at certain moments that were exquisite. Has there been anything surprising that this led to, again, the simplicity of storytelling, simplicity of personal storytelling. It's been so engaging. It's it's gained such a large audience. It's undeniable. It's timeless. Has anything happened as a result of this that surprised you? The podcast is one thing that you mentioned that you felt you weren't sure it was going to translate. And then now it has translated in a, in a very global and powerful way. Has anything else happened as a result? Yeah, there are always surprises. You know, I get letters from people in very, very interesting places who want my advice on starting a moth or a moth clone, you know, I mean. Um, and I, you know, there isn't that much advice to give. It's, it's something you just sort of need to kind of do. Um, get your friends together and try it, and then you'll learn. Um I guess I was surprised, surprised to some extent to see how it's taken off globally. I was a little taken aback that uh, a global movement sprang up. I come from Savannah, and our previous global movement was the Girl Scouts. And so I was very proud that we had created another one. Now you have two. <laughs> now we have two global movements. It doesn't in any way make up for the horrors that, are, that Savannah has been behind. But it's nice to have that. I was once charmed. I did an interview with uh, an editor at, at the Dublin Times when The Moth premiered in Dublin. And, um, and he wrote a nice little article. And at the end, he said, Thank you, Mr. Green, for bringing storytelling to Ireland. (laughs) That's That's very good. (laughs) So, uh, obviously, everyone wants to be a good storyteller. Nobody wants to be a bad storyteller. Everyone tells stories all day long. It's how you communicate with the world. Um, What do you feel is the difference between a great storyteller and uh, an average one? Uh, it's an awareness of, of that the story has to be about a decision. And you have to draw your audience into that decision. And that 
really sums it up. I would also say, and I've always emphasized, that it's about being vulnerable. You know, it's about uh, a willingness to expose yourself. Um, in the very early days of the moth, when we were still struggling, Jonathan Ames, uh, we found him. And, you know, Jonathan Ames created the, that HBO show, Bored to Death. He's a great writer and a great, great performer. But he came to the rehearsal and he started telling me a story that I don't think I can even, I mean, I don't know, you're probably a G-rated podcast, so I can't really tell it. But I, <laughs> I can say that it involved a, a moment of exposure to his mother of an activity that he was participating in as a young adolescent <laughs> I think we know what you're talking about. <laughs> it was remarkable. It was unbelievable that he was willing to go to his mother <laughs> and show her this and say, Mom, look what I can do. And I just thought, and when, when I heard it, I, I remember having a little bit of a, of a flinch. Like, you know, I, I didn't really have a flinch. I mean, I come, you know, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I mean, we, nothing surprises us. But I was sort of surprised that he was so willing to bring it up and to talk about it. And, uh, and of course, he, he, he had no problem at all. And at, at the end of the night, I noticed that he had, uh, he had five female members of the audience sort of hanging on his arm. And I just thought, God, that's the power of being willing to be vulnerable. Such a key in life. The willing to say, I don't really care. I'm going to be perfectly honest. This is who I am. It's great. It's great. So is there anything you wanted to talk about that uh, I might not have hit? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how, how to put this. I do think that the moth is about community and that sometimes does get lost in this internet age. I have been adamant about maintaining the moth as mostly performance. It's a thing that you have to go there. You have to be there. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a novelist, so I, I don't know why, you know, I mean, I, I'm aware that people take my books and they go back into private rooms and, and, and there's no community at all in that, in that sense. But I still think there's such a power to the community listening to stories. And I think that that's where the future of the moth lies. I, I think that there are places that we can go with that that we haven't quite been. Mm. I know that whenever I go on tour, um, you know, I'll pile up a bunch of raconteurs in a school bus and we'll, uh, you know, a few years ago we went around the South towns where there were still independent bookstores. That was the only uh, criterion. And it was just amazing. I mean, sometimes these would be little towns in the middle of nowhere, sometimes big cities. But we could go to a little town and still a huge crowd would gather, uh, in part because one of our storytellers was Neil Gaiman, um, who has, you know, a huge following. But we had sort of deliberately not told anybody that Neil Gaiman was on the tour. A lot of it just had to do with people wanted, wanted that community. And then when they were exposed to that, to us telling stories and then sitting around with them and continuing to drink all night, you know, we'd go to a pub and we'd just all drink and we'd share stories and we'd record their stories. And their stories were amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and that I sort of think is the future of the moth. And I, uh, you know, I hope it's uh, just a great future of the art of, of the raconteur. I think that it will have a powerful place in our world in, in the rather scary times to come. It's obviously always had a powerful place, but specifically as people retreat into their, into their online lives and into their homes and retreat from the virus and retreat, you know, just retreating, retreating, retreating. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think community becomes more and more important. There were, 
there was a group of young people that started to follow our tours around. They would go from town to town following us. And it felt a little bit like uh, the Grateful Dead days. But those, you know, I never went to a, a Dead concert, but I had lots and lots of friends who did and who are kind of rapturous about, about the community that they found there. I do think that there's just a hunger for community. It's not going to go away. It's not being served by Zoom or Microsoft Team. It's served by getting into rooms and with people and talking to them. What do you think is unique about individual storytelling and creating community that might be different? Storytelling is so much about the audience reaction. It's, it's not only is the audience out there shaping the story, I think, you know, a, a lot of times, if, if it's a good moth uh, or a good night of, of raconteuring, people will then come up and share their own stories. So there's this real sense of, you know, a back and forth. Um, and, and that somehow makes the community nights feel so much more closely bonded. When, when it works, People don't go right home. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I was really happy to have George on the show. I think what I loved most was that George said storytelling is the essence of what it means to be human. That part really spoke to me, and I I really enjoyed talking to him about it. What also stuck out to me was that one of George's motivations to start The Moth was that there was nothing else out there created to celebrate the raconteur. Now, you also heard George ask if there had been any events that focused on personal, unscripted storytelling prior to 1997. Now, I suggested court, but I think that's what George had in mind. So if you have a possible answer, email us at podcasts at gray.com, and we'll share it with George. We hope you've enjoyed Gray Matters so far, and we'd love to hear from you in our listener survey. Check out the link in the episode description. This is the last episode of our second season. Please stay subscribed to the feed. We'll have some bonus content before season three begins in a few months. And as always, let us know what you think of the show by reaching out on Gray's social channels. And so that does it for us. Be safe, be well, and thanks for listening to Gray Matter. Gray Matter is hosted by John Petrulis, produced by Joey Scarillo, Danielle Hunt, and John Dillon, mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Gramercy Park Studios. Additional support by Christina Hyde, John Jenkinson, Grace McDougal, Lydia Dizon, and Ryan Cunningham. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. Hey, Amanda Davis here to tell you about the Hashtag Five Things podcast from Gray, your source each week for the latest updates and news in social media. For 30 minutes, we dive deep into the headlines from the social channels that you use the most, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and more. Search your podcast apps with the hashtag, the number five things, hashtag five things, powered by Gray.